What I'd like to begin with today uh, is a quote from an author that many of you may know. Uh, You might have heard of him or heard of this book. The book is called The Grace Awakening. It's written by Charles Swindoll. It's really an amazing work. It's it's sold over 500,000 copies worldwide, and it, it boldly speaks against religious legalism. Legalism, if you're not familiar, is the unbiblical principle that the way we achieve righteousness or standing before God is to follow rules that are not laid out in the Bible. Swindoll writes in his chapter titled, Squaring Off Against Legalism, uh, this quote, Most every cult you could name is a cult of salvation by works. It appeals to the flesh. It tells you, if you stand on the street corner so long, or if you deliver so much literature, or if you will sacrifice so much of your life, or if you'll be water baptized, if you will contribute your money, or if you will pray and attend numerous meetings, then your good works and hard effort will cause God to smile on you. Unquote. Now, I think that most of you have known me for a while now, been around me in the office or in church, realize that I don't have a legalistic bone in my body. Well, actually, if I were to have a full body x-ray, there probably would be a small legalistic bone there somewhere. Uh, But I don't gauge a person's spirituality by what they wear or by how many times you show up at church throughout the week. Uh, Those are your choices. Uh, And concerning Sunday mornings in particular, I I really clearly understand that life happens. People get sick. When you get older, it gets more difficult to get out of the house. It's hard to drive. You don't want to leave after dark. Uh, Many people work odd shifts, and it affects their ability um, to come to church on Sundays. Uh, Everyone has a right to vacation and enjoy life and uh, be blessed in that way. I understand all of that. But there are certain expectations that Scripture would place upon born-again Christians. Uh, Would would you agree with me? Uh, We are completely saved by grace. We do not contribute to our salvation one iota with works. But Scripture clearly provides parameters with how a Christian should behave. There are expectations. You shall not worship other gods. You shall not steal You shouldn't be a drunkard. How about you shall not forsake the assembly of the saints? That's a clear principle in Scripture. I think I hear groans already. Oh no, I didn't come to the message about not forsaking church on Sundays. Yes, you did. Do not try to leave. I've already instructed the ushers to lock the doors. There are many non-sin behaviors that are left of preference and are optional. Wear a tie, don't wear a tie. Buy new or used cars. Eat meat, be a vegetarian. These are all options that a Christian is permitted to choose. But regularly attending a weekly church service is not one of them. It's not regarded in the Bible as a preference. If you'll give me your ear... For a few minutes, I think uh, you'll understand the importance here. And I believe that when you leave today, you'll go away with a much greater appreciation of attending church on Sunday. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 is usually used as the proof text for attending church. 
Uh, I'll begin with actually verse 24, the verse before that. You may want to turn there. Uh, I'll be bouncing around. This is a topical sermon. I'm not going through an entire passage today. So I will be bouncing around Scripture. Uh, but I will come back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 again. And in verse 24 it says, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Assembling together is without question referring to the local church. The author of Hebrews was addressing a specific location. Jesus did say he will build his church. That is an overarching theme there, his greater church, his universal church. But nonetheless, Scripture identifies recognizable local congregations. The church that exists in Ephesus. The church that is in Thyatira. The church of Smyrna. Etc., etc. Jesus himself, in Revelation, addresses specific identifiable church bodies. I would add to that, the church that meets at 1120 Southwest Par Drive. We fondly know as Port St. Lucie Bible Church. Hebrews says, do not forsake it. Forsake is an interesting word. It means to abandon or to desert, to leave in a helpless state. Paul uses the same term in 2 Timothy to describe what Demas did to him during Paul's final legal defense. This one was when Paul's situation had deteriorated at the end of his life. He was facing execution for his efforts as being a Christian. And of course, Alexander the coppersmith had gotten the best of him and had done very much harm to the apostle. And Paul said in that text, Demas, loving this present world, deserted me. That's the same word. Demas forsook him. The scene in in Hebrews might be illustrated as, as soldiers in a foxhole being overpowered by an enemy. And in desperation, they send out a runner to replenish ammunition. Then after getting out of sight, the runner looks back at the foxhole and sees the hail of gunfire, says to himself, I'm out of here. Now, if you think that may be an unfair or too graphic of an illustration for this situation here, I would remind you that that image is very similar to what's going on in Hebrews. They were in a battle for the truth of the gospel to save the souls of their community from hell. Um, They were being overrun by the enemy. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author reminds them, Remember the former days when after being enlightened, that is coming to the gospel, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. Some of them had been imprisoned for their faith. And you accepted joyfully, it says, the seizure of your property. They were in a spiritual battle. And surely they'd be tempted to run and turn and take off. But chapter 10 continues and says that Christians don't shrink back. Chapter 10 says, But my righteous one, God says, will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, 
My soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. Genuine Christians are willing to suffer all kinds of loss to remain with their local church, including the seizure of their home and their property, and yes, even face death. Jesus said in his notorious Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are they who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you for me. Rejoice and be glad, he says, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Suffering and persecution is the fate Christians anticipate, not wealth and prosperity. I'm glad we don't see much persecution here in the U.S. myself. Very glad of that. Praise the Lord. At least we don't yet. But if we do and when we do, Christians don't shrink back. Jesus was fully devoted to his church, enough so that he would die and bleed and suffer for it, And so are his followers. In Acts, Stephen was stoned. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified. The early church father, Polycarp, was burned. Ignatius was fed to wild beasts. Yet they wouldn't forsake the work they had started in the church. Still going on in the world today. When I was out a missionary... Uh, out of our church in Denton, Texas, we had others around the world that we would meet, other missionaries sent out from our local church. And there was one in particular, his name was Babu George. And he was gone to India on mission trip. Actually, Babu was, was born in India. Then he immigrated into the U.S. He came to faith in Jesus Christ and then went to seminary to uh, further his ability to minister. So he had gone to India Rita and I took the soft route and went to North Dakota. And we were back for a missions conference, and we were able to get together with, with Babu and his family and hear about what was going on in India. And uh, he shared it had been very tough. If any of you are familiar with India, it, it is very, uh, very harsh on uh, foreign religions. It depends upon what part of the country you're in. Some parts are, are worse than others. Some are quite secular, but others really bad. Really bad. So he was touring through the north side of uh, India, and he was coming across encouraging local congregations, small congregations of churches. And there was one town he came to, and the Christians had been forced by the locals to leave town. They were forced out with their families, numbers of families that were Christian, and they were forced to leave town. Their Homes were ransacked, their possessions were stolen, and they, said, and they were told, you can't live with us. And they gave them no provisions and sent them out into the wilderness. So Babu was able to catch up with this congregation as he's making his rounds, and he came to the tribe leader, pastor, however they designate it there, leader of their church, their congregation, and uh, heard the grim news, and he asked him, what are you going to do? And the leader told them what the stipulations were. That leader told Babu, 
They have told us we can come back to town and live and eat and go back to our homes if we will forsake Jesus Christ. If we will verbally say we are no longer committed to Jesus Christ or his church. Babu asked him, what are you going to do? There's no exaggeration. He said, we will stay here and die. The writer of Hebrews says, under tremendously difficult circumstances, you stand firm with your local church. You don't defect. Every day across America, pastors see people abandon the ranks because they don't like music. They don't like the seating. They don't like the parking. They don't like all kinds of things. What do we think Jesus is going to say about that when we see him? Well, today for both yours and my sake, we're going to be reminded to not forsake the assembly of the saints. Uh, so if you're commanded to, by Scripture to not forsake the assembly, you should probably have a pretty basic understanding of what that assembly is. What is the church? So we're going to have a very brief scan of the Scriptures and uh, study What is the church? Then I'm going to give you some practical ways in which you can forsake your church so that we don't. First and foremost, it's very important that we realize that the church is not defined by any single verse of Scripture. The church is not defined by any single verse of Scripture. You can't proof text it, is what I'm saying. You must scan the entirety of the New Testament and understand the Old Testament to get a picture of what the church is. It's a living organism. It takes many members to sustain it. You heard in the text from Romans chapter 1 that I read earlier, there are many members in the body. They're all equally important. They're not not the same function. We serve one another as the Holy Spirit especially gifted us. Some teach, others exhort, some provide mercy, some play instruments, some serve, a whole lot serve. And though all contribute financially according to how the Lord prospers them, some are gifted to be led to give more. What does that look like on a practical basis? Some preach, some edify, others mow grass, some change a diaper, other persons visit those who are sick. We all get the picture. We know how that functions. So there are many members who give sacrificially and for a mutual goal. That is the second characteristic of the local church I'd like you to notice. We don't all just do our own thing. We aren't a social club where we hang out and decide if we want to watch baseball or if we want to watch football. And if we disagree, you know, one person sits over here and watches football and another person sits over in that corner and watches baseball. No. We link arms. We come together for a goal that is prescribed through Scripture. We're united in a mission. And that mission must further the gospel of Jesus Christ. If it doesn't, what's the point? We're just wasting our time. At our mission at Port St. Lucie Bible Church is to transform our community by demonstrating the compassion of Jesus Christ. And you're all doing that very well, by the way. 
We repeatedly reaffirm our mission to keep us from running off into a ditch theologically. Uh, We've gotten calls here at our church, believe it or not. I think Mary took one of them. There were local animal shelters that were looking for pastors to spend their time going and blessing animals. No. No, that isn't our mission. You don't find that anywhere in Scripture. We're here to love animals. I love animals. We're here to build Christ's church. We need to stay uniform and in unity with what our goal is. So a church body has a goal that they work together with. Um, thirdly, the local church has organizational structure. We see this in First and Second Timothy and then Titus as well, which are called pastoral letters, pastoral epistles. They're written by the Apostle Paul so that local pastors know the principles of how to govern a church, how to lead a church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3.14, Paul says to Timothy, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Those instructions are so people will know how to conduct themselves. There's a lot in First and Second Timothy and Titus that give us a picture of the church. For instance, they give qualifications of what is identified as overseers. Scripture parallels that role of overseer with, with pastor, elder, shepherd, we call it. It gives qualifications for anyone who might fill that role, what that looks like. The pastor, elder, must be a man of good reputation. He must be hospitable, not a drunkard. He must be able to teach sound doctrine and refute people who come to the church and try to contradict. Uh, elders have a responsibility to lead and to defend. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.17 says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So we have an office of elder. Scripture also provides an office of deacon, which has separate responsibilities that complement the office of elder. The point I'm trying to make without going into a whole bunch of detail is the church is operationally functional. It works. Fourth, the church is a training camp. Scripture says that God has given the, the local church apostles and, pro, and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the works of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. There again we have purpose for building up the body of Christ. You have these talents, these gifts to build the church. Then it commands pastors to preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Rebuke, rebuke reprove, exhort with great patience and instruction. So that, the church is a location where people are intentionally equipped. Intentionally equipped for the purpose. We are a training ground. Another one is, the local church has uh, musical worship. They have a wor- musical worship component, whatever that looks like. We get parameters, whatever instruments you want to use, as long as they're glorifying to God in your heart, that's fine. I'm not a big guy who takes a big stand on whether or not you can use a guitar. But it does say there will be music. Colossians 3.16, which we studied through the book of Colossians a few months ago, you probably remember, it said, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, and with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, 
singing and thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's instructions to the church. You teach and admonish one another, one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There's a musical component. Scripture provides a bunch of characteristics. A local church has procedures for discipline if immorality threatens a church. Uh, a church has ways of distributing aid and identifies parameters within Scripture of how that is given out. It apparently develops strategies to take the gospel to the lost. That means at our heart we're evangelistic. We are going out to win the lost. Um, for that reason, we naturally want to expand Christ's influence wherever we are. Um, that goes on and on, but my survey cannot, as you know. So, do you get the picture? You picture all these principles in the church. The church is very dynamic, and uh, yet it is a simple, functioning organization. For that reason, before I go on to tell us how we can forsake it, an obvious point needs to be made. Bear with me. The local church is not a couple people huddled together in a coffee shop that have made no commitment to one another, have identified no structure or no purpose, and have no goal. There's a verse that we hear quite often that says, well, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I'm in your midst. Jesus said that. In that verse, he's in no way giving a definition of the local church. That is not a definition of the local church. He did not say wherever two or three are gathered is a local church. The local church looks different than that. In context, actually, when you read Matthew chapter 18 where that exists... It's, he's in pro providing encouragement to Christians who are facing a very difficult situation. Actually, it's a situation, Matthew 18, of church discipline. Of whether or not they have to ask someone to leave the church. And he says, wherever you are, wherever you made this decision, he encourages them, I'm with you. He says he's with us. It's not a complete definition of the church. It is a facet of the church. Hang with me. This is important. Do you remember last week when I showed you from Scripture how pastors aren't self-identified? They don't choose themselves. Um, church leadership instead identifies over time the next generation of leaders that are serving and growing up and becoming equipped. And uh, they, are, uh, they are observed, they are taught, they are discipled, they are equipped to go out and lead the next generation of church. Uh, for years, God prepares them. Then what happens? What we see in Acts and other epistles, the church lays hands on them, says, we identify with these people because we know them from a long period of time, and they send them out. That's the biblical principle of ordination. That's what ordination is. We identify these people with us, whether it's a pastor or you see it with missionaries. We are sending you out because we found you to be competent uh, and we found that your personality is, uh, is agreeable before they put them in charge of a congregation to shepherd. Um, scripture says, uh, more principles. You don't lay hands on a new convert or on a, on a person too quickly. There must be a period of examination. You don't do it with a new convert. You're asking for trouble. They haven't been observed for very long. 
Why do I go to such lengths to explain this? Uh, on forsaking the church, on a topic like that? Because it's, it's especially important for the safety of our children. Especially important for the safety of our youth. If you're summoned by an individual to join him or her uh, at a small gathering somewhere that doesn't have any of the criteria of a local church, doesn't have any principles that you find in Scripture, either the ones I've mentioned or further ones that you find yourself as you study through Scripture because church is so dynamic, um, if he doesn't meet any of those criteria or have any purpose, I'd ask him, who identified you as being biblically qualified to lead a church? Who is behind you? Who's laid hands on you? Why should we trust you with our spirituality and our doctrine? If he says something like, well, well, you know, wherever two or three are gathered, there's your church. Or if he says something like, well, you know, we went to church over at such and such and we really didn't get along with anyone, so we come now to do our own thing, beware. Beware. Um... I encourage people to meet with one another, to open their Bibles. Two or three are gathered. You will probably be edified. You might be encouraged. You might lead a waitress or a waiter to Christ. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of that. They're, they're actually very good. Uh, a soldier in battle can sit in a foxhole and encourage a fellow Christian soldier for battle and be edified and encouraged. But that's not a church. They haven't fulfilled in that regard the biblical requirement for attending a church, not forsaking the assembly of the saints. There's no assembly. Okay. Because that, that notion that you can just stay at home uh, and open your Bible and then with a friend or someone else say a prayer in, in the privacy of your own home and never do offer yourself to any church or, or commit to anyone is so rampant in our Society in America, it is quite possibly the greatest heresy that faces us in this day. That you can just get together with someone, say a prayer, never, never seek to reach out to anyone or care for anyone or offer your giftedness week after week to people. It's very dangerous. America has forsaken the assembly of the saints in many ways. So let's get a little practical. Um, I know people saying, you know, I'm going to do better. I think that's, that's a good principle. You might also ask this question about this text. So to clarify that, uh, a lot of people say, well, isn't this text actually teaching about apostasy? Which apostasy is a final and ultimate forsaking of the church. That position would propose that this text is warning against forsaking the assembly with finality. That is correct. In fact, to understand the book of Hebrews, you pretty much have to read the entire letter in this, in this vein. Uh, you can't just proof text very much of Hebrews. The overarching theme of this letter is warning converted Hebrews, converted Jews, to not turn their back on Christianity. That is the overarching theme. See, some of them wanted to revert back to Judaism. The temple is still functioning in Jerusalem. And some of them were getting their homes taken. They were getting their possessions taken. They were getting imprisoned. They were getting beaten. 
And some of them are like, you know, it wasn't this hard back in Judaism. Uh, they were tempted to completely forsake the saints, forsake the assembly, and return to the temple sacrifices. Because it was still probably for five to ten years, the temple was still uh, functioning. It wasn't destroyed till about 70 A.D. and, and then was never rebuilt again. So there, there, there was finality there. Uh, they were tempted to completely forsake the church, and, and the writer says, that is out of the question. He says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You can't go back to that. But the text isn't only concerning forsaking the church with finality. It's warning against forsaking your responsibility to your local church. Uh, please take one moment to look again at Hebrews chapter 10, where we were. Again in verse 24, it says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. This command begins, Let us stimulate one another to love and good works. The construction of this Greek sentence between verses 24 and 25, is, is what we call participial. And all we need to know about that, you and I, is that you can't divorce verse 25 from verse 24. Uh, you can't say, do not forsake the assembly without looking at stimulate one another to works of service. The thought of, ver of verse 24 is carried on to verse 25, so it is a unit. So by failing to assemble, the Hebrews would fail their God-given responsibility to stimulate and encourage one another. Here's the idea. When you were born again, I pray you each have been born again, if you, when you were born again, and the Holy Spirit came down to dwell inside of you and take up residence in you, He gave you something. He didn't give you a time card to be punched. He didn't say check in, check out. The Holy Spirit gave you at least one, probably more, gifts, spiritual gifts. You saw a change in your life where you're like, I'm not like I was. There's real, I really love the church. I want to do this for them. I want to sing for them. I want to teach them. I want to grow with them. I want to love Christ's church. These are gifts that the Holy Spirit has given you. So by failing to assemble, the Hebrews had failed at using their gifts. That's the point of this. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, it says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. We all have different ministries, different gifts. We work together for the same mission. It says, There are a variety of effects, but the same God who works in all things, in all persons. But to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit. For the common good. The manifestation of that spirit, that gift, is for the common good of the church. How can you do that if you don't come to church? So in wrapping up, I'm going to provide you a few of the detrimental effects which occur when you or I forsake the church, so that we don't, and then we'll take communion. We've already discussed that you can forsake your church when you don't regularly attend, that's quite obvious. 
or when you don't share your giftedness. Another way would be financially. I'm not the type to talk, talk about money very often. I think this is the first time since I've been here. Uh, but it's appropriate on this topic. Some people reser- refuse to give to their church. Um, for any number of reasons, some just don't have money. I understand that. Some can't. But there's others who just say, I'd rather give it somewhere else. I'd rather take my finances and give it to some other entity, maybe the Girl Scouts or something. They say, well, I don't really, you know, I'm not 100% in with what's going on at church. I don't really like it there, so I'm going to give my money somewhere else. You're forsaking the church. You're not helping them in their goal. You're not using your giftedness. You're not reaching the community with your resources. Money is a uh, spiritual barometer of dedication to the church. That was an Ananias and Sapphira problem. In Acts 5, they pretended to be more committed to the church than they actually were. They only wanted to give some when they wanted people to think they were giving all. God struck them dead. Scripture says very clearly, money wasn't the issue. Money wasn't the issue. Peter said, the money that you had, that's your money, but you've lied to God. Financially is one way. A person who uh, can also forsake the assembly by forfeiting the, the scriptural and spiritual unity of the body. Let me explain this. Because of busy lives, most people don't have a vibrant devotional time at home. Most people don't. Many of you do. Many of you have some kind of devotional time, I know. Um, but many don't have a vibrant devotional time. Many don't have the spiritual gift of discernment of the scriptures. Not everyone's gifted in that way. It's not that one's better than another, but not everyone's gifted in the same way. So it makes it very hard for them to self-teach. On Sunday mornings, we grow together through the scriptures, through the word of God. Um, Many times, many times after teaching uh, here previously on Mission Works, many, many times, almost all the time, I'll have someone come up and say, you know that sermon last week, that topic we talked about, that passage? Man, I read this other book of the Bible and look what it showed me about that. And I'll be edified. I'm like, wow, that's awesome. We were together. You came up with more. You add and compliment what I heard and, and I'll spiritually grow from it. Really a blessing. I love that. I never have walked away from teaching anything without, um, without learning. We do that on Sunday evenings. We'll come together and uh, we'll open the book and we'll have a little more interaction. And I get feedback that just completely edifies me. I'm like, wow, they had seen, the bodies together has seen a much more vivid picture of Scripture. So there's this common bond of unity that bonds us together. Families will drive home talking about a passage. You need to be together, right, to grow in that way? That's very clearly the case. I mean, we don't grow in isolation. We grow from a body. And a family will go home, they might have six or eight kids. Maybe not. Maybe you'll be a husband and a wife. Maybe you'll be you alone with the Lord if you're single. But you're going to be edified. We become edified together through God's Word. It's one of the most inspiring things that we can do for one another is to encourage and stimulate one another to good works. Now compare that to someone who walks up and says, and I've had this happen, Pastor, 
Why don't you ever do a sermon on communion? I just did. You weren't here. I, I hear that quite. Why don't you do a sermon? We've done it. But if you're not here regularly, within parameters, you miss so much of what is going on at your home church. That's whether you're a visitor today or whether you're a member of this church, whatever your situation is, you grow with your church together. There's one reason that we put sermons online, by the way. It's not because a whole lot of people want to listen to me around the country, like Chuck Swindoll. I, I know that's not the case. The reason they're online is so if you miss church, you can get back on track. So that you can come together again and listen to what was said and then have comment on it or share with one another. And we all stay uh, in cadence together. A fifth principle would be worship. Romans 12.1 said, Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We come to church to be equipped to use our gifts. We've already learned that. We offer our bodies with reverence as our spiritual service of worship to God. It is a worship act to, to utilize your gift. And there exists a false notion in a way that God is just satisfied with whatever effort you put forward. Well, you know, I didn't have much time to think about that or practice that or do that. Um, Christians always strive to do their best. I know we all struggle with that. I do. But we should always strive as Christians to offer God our best in whatever we're doing. Um, That partially comes from encouraging one another. It doesn't matter if you're painting a wall or whether you're singing a song or playing an instrument or teaching one another. We get better when being encouraged with one another and challenged to one another to practice and uh, do worship really well together. You read through the Old Testament, I know you had New Testament. The, the, the quality of the sacrifice is always important to God. So we encourage one another in that. We encourage one another in that. Do well. Uh, my, one of my, my old pastor used to say, successful churches do the simple things really well. They do the simple things really well. They sing well. They smile well. They love well. Don't forsake your church by not giving your best effort. Do it well. There are several more that I could make, um, but I'm not going to do that. There's, there's one more that I think is quite important. And it's for yours and my sake as well. Atten- attending church regularly is essential to your emotional well-being. It is essential to your emotional well-being. While the modern church movement transforms, morphs into becoming a social health spa, the local church better resembles a hospital. People are broken. We're broken. There's people of us here that are broken. There are people outside our walls that are broken. The people we're trying to reach are broken. Sin and temptation enters the world. Christians aren't immune. We all need doctoring. Jesus said, I came so that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. So abundant life does not come at increasing possessions or with a quality massage. Joy and satisfaction come from reprioritizing your life to reality. At Delta Airlines, we had a, had a maintenance process that we uh, called swinging the compass. If anyone's in aviation here, they would know what that means. Swinging the compass. So even on 
these multi-million dollar jets, the finest that is out there, sometimes the compass gets tweaked. The compass gets off. So in all these takeoffs and landings and all this turbulence and the bumps and bruises that come through life, I mean through the air, every once in a while at intervals you need to be recalibrated to true north. You need to be recalibrated to what is going on up there because the world gets us diverted off from our goal. You may have an in-law that is just badgering you to death one week. You might have a boss that is belittling you. Perhaps a neighbor pulls into the driveway with a brand new Mercedes coupe. You got to look at that. Folks, that's not reality. That's not what's most important. We need to recalibrate back to true north in our lives. That happens with weekly recalibrating when you can. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, we've brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we had food and covering, the apostle says, with these we'll, we'll be content. With food and covering we'll be content. How do you become content with so very little? How is that possible? It's because you recalibrate, refocus on why we're here. You've got to always be refocusing back to why the church is here. It will help you navigate through life. We're here to build Christ's kingdom, not to acquire stuff. I like stuff. We all like stuff. But Christians can fall into despair because they don't have. A lot of churches really, to be honest, a lot of churches exert a whole lot of resources and a whole lot of money um, to entertain people, to try to restore their emotional health. That's not the answer. The answer is abundant life comes through utilizing your giftedness and seeing how God works through you, and seeing how God reaches the lost, those lost family members, those lost people on your street corner. That is where fulfillment exists. That's where we are. There's a a person here who has been uh, having to miss church quite a bit because of church response, or uh, excuse me, work responsibilities. And uh, I won't use the person's name because they're not here. I didn't have permission to... They asked beforehand. It's not a big deal, but just a polite thing. This individual uh, had to work a lot of nights, a lot of weekends, and had gotten, you know, a little down about missing church. That's a good sign. You know, if you're down when you miss, that's a good sign. Anyhow, shifts have adjusted again, and that individual got to go out and, and hold signs with Gerald and I and, and the other group that was out there. Gerald wasn't in the picture, but I attest he was there. He was taking the picture. But this individual came out and held a sign and heard horns honking and people waving. And, and, and uh, by far, anyone who's been out there will tell you there's way more positive comments than there are. You may get one or two negative comments throughout the whole hour, hour and a half, hour long. Way more positive. And the individual expressed this one thing. I, this was just amazing because people are turning left and we're holding a sign and the little kids in the back seat are looking at the sign this individual was holding, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And she looks and she says, these little kids are seeing Jesus before they go home. She's rejuvenated because she's using her giftedness, her time, her talents, and joy filled her. Joy filled her. It was really a lot of fun, and that's, that's kind of what we experienced. And that may not be the thing for you. We're not trying to ramrod that one thing. We're just letting you know it's out there. That may not be something you can do. 
with the signs that we showed you earlier. Uh, maybe a different thing, but you get spiritual fulfill- fulfillment and emotional stability from coming back and using your, God, your uh, gifts to worship Jesus Christ. Just worshiping or attending church once in a while isn't, isn't enough. Isn't enough. That's not it. I'm going to ask the men to come forward now to celebrate communion. I thank you for your time. Um, I think the moral of the story here is don't just dabble in church. You need to be all in. You know what other principles there are. I didn't touch all of them today and didn't need to. Um, Jesus gave himself to his church fully. And we should do the same. Uh, He loved his church so much, um, actually, that he promised those who serve him well that they're going to be given rewards. At the judgment seat, not at the judgment seat. There there are two judgments that are going to happen uh, at the end times when Christ returns or when we're raptured. And one of them is going to be the great white throne judgment. That will be people who are not washed in the blood of the Lamb. And uh, that is the one to destruction. That is a judgment to destruction. We are not going to sit at that judgment. We have been cleansed of our sins. There's going to be what's called a Bema seat judgment. That's a reward seat. That's all it means, Bema, rewards seat. And Christ is going to look at all you've done to honor him, to bless him, to love others, to serve his church. And he's going to look at you and he's, he's going to reward you. And uh, we don't want to forsake that gift. That gift's going to last for eternity. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. We are going to talk at the end of the month about that rewards. I told you we would do that. And before we go back into a, a complete book, of the Bible. I told you we're probably going to work through Ruth next. Probably start that right at the mid of February. We've got a couple things we need to cover yet. And uh, we're going to talk about rewards. It's going to take me some more reading to make sure I'm uh, true north on that one. If you're here today as a visitor, um, we pray that you know Jesus Christ, that he came to, to die for us, to die for our sins. He was God's son. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He did what we can't do, and then he offered himself up to die in our place. He was punished for us. He died. Then he was rose again uh, from the grave and was seen by over 500 at one time, Luke tells us. And uh, so, if you do not know Jesus Christ, I'd encourage you to to put your faith in him that he has done what you can't do. That's what we celebrate in Communion. We celebrate and commemorate, we remember, the scripture says, what he did for us, that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. And uh, scripture also says, examine yourself. Examine your sins, ones you haven't confessed, ones you haven't, um, haven't succeeded over. I know we're all a work, aren't we? But seek the Lord and uh, examine yourself, scripture says. And then we invite you, if you're a visitor today, we practice open communion. Please join us. Nathan, would you pray before distributing the bread, please?
someone took you and nailed you on a cross out in the yard outside and you suffered in agony. Yet that's what we're celebrating, because you died for each one of us. It was a long time ago, it was on the other side of the world, and it's real easy sometimes to get a little bit separated from what it actually was did for us. And I pray that as we take this bread and as we uh, just eat it, that we would be really mindful of what you did for us, the sacrifice that you made for me and As the bread is passed, would you sing with me two verses of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross? In the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance 
of me. Jesus provided the path to forgiveness by shedding his blood on the cross. Hebrews 9.22 says that all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. There are no alternatives to Christ's blood. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. You can't go to Buddha. You can't go to Muhammad. You need to come to the sinless, perfect Lamb of God. He will wash away your sins. This juice represents Christ's blood, which was shed for us on Calvary. Earl, would you pray before distributing the juice? you sing with me the first verse? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe.
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Will you pray with me? Lord, we're so grateful for your sacrifice and establishing your church, Lord. We know you love it and we do too. Lord, strengthen us to be used by you. And Lord, uh, use it all for your glory. Lord, I pray for these families as they head home, as they chart their course for a new week, Lord, that you'll bless them. That uh, you'll give them the confidence of how much you love them, Lord. Strengthen their lives, strengthen their homes. We ask that you do this in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you, give you his peace. Amen. Have a wonderful weekend.